Good evening, everyone. My name is Diana Morris, and I am the uh, director of the Open Society Institute Baltimore. It's my great pleasure uh, to welcome you all here tonight and to thank you very much for joining us. Many of you return customers to our Talking About Race series. Uh, we're really pleased that you're here with us. Um, as many of you know, we have co-sponsored this Talking About Race series for, uh, I think we're in our sixth year now. And we've had the great pleasure of doing it often with the Enoch Platt Library. In fact, Carla Hayden is unable to join us tonight, but she does send her regards to everybody here. The Enoch Platt has been a wonderful partner for us as we explore this issue of race. And tonight is a special because in addition to the Pratt, we have some co-sponsors whom I want to thank and also list. Uh, those are the Annie Casey Foundation, the Baltimore Racial Justice Action, and the YWCA of Greater Baltimore. So these are wonderful uh, co-sponsors with us. I want to, as always, thank the Open Society Institute Board and our Leadership Council, and in particular to thank uh, those of you here who are investing in our work, uh, and including in particular Vernon Reed and Sheila Murthy, who have directed their support to Open Society for this series. Uh, we continue to be very committed to these conversations because at the Open Society Institute, we try to be very aware of racial dynamics in virtually everything we do. Uh, our goal is to increase opportunity and justice in this re region, especially for those in our community who have uh, really been dealing not only with poverty, but also with historical and current uh, discrimination. Many of the topics that we do explore uh, in this Talking About Race series closely relate to what we do focus on at the Open Society Institute. And those issues are providing drug addiction treatment uh, to all those who need it, curtailing the overuse of incarceration, and putting programs and practices in place that keep people out of the juvenile justice and adult criminal justice system in the first place. And for those who do become engaged in those systems, making sure that there are, in fact, second chances to become productive and successful and truly parts of the community. We also work to ensure that all of our children here, every single one, have an opportunity to be in school and to feel engaged and excited about what they're doing and learning, feeling successful, and in fact being successful. So they're prepared to be citizens and employees and, uh, and employers and family members, just as they would like to be. And in particular, we want to make sure that those children uh, are not denied the opportunity that education represents by harsh discipline policies. So, um, as I said, we've done this series now for uh, many years, but what's what I think is uh, one of our questions always on our mind as we attack this issue of racism um, is how can we really get a meaningful discussion going that really allows us to address this topic deeper. And that's one of the reasons we're really thrilled to have Shakti Butler uh, with us tonight. She's been grappling with this issue for a very long time. And tonight you'll see that she'll be able to share ways that will, I think, actually help us to dig more deeply into the conversation and understand not only the dynamics of race and racism, but also to help us gain a better understanding of each other. Um, 
As her work attests, and as we've sometimes discussed in this room at other presentations, the, the large elephant in the room is not just all of us as individuals and the biases that we carry, but actually the systems that perpetuate policies and practices that are responsible for many of the injustices that we witness and many of us live on a daily basis. So we need to approach our conversation by looking through a different frame of reference. We need to look at issues that we've also discussed here in the past of implicit bias and racial anxiety. And we also need to look at those systems themselves that perpetuate institutional racism. So before I actually introduce uh, Shakti Butler, which I'm very eager to do, and I know you are t happy to meet her, I want to mention um, one other event that Open uh, Society Institute is going to have. It's this October 27th, and it's Big Change Baltimore. Some of you may have joined us for it last year at Center Stage, and I really hope that you will look and get more information about the event um, by going to Big Change Baltimore. Org. Um, and I think you'll be very excited to hear about some of the speakers. Uh, Piper Kerman, Kerman from Orange is the New Black, Bill Keller who has the Marshall Project that's looking uh, to create a news organization focused uh, specifically on crime and punishment, and Ian Lopez uh, which, uh, who is a person who's written and, and thinks deeply about how racism has evolved in the United States. And if you'd like more information about us or be invited to more of uh, these kinds of events, simply go to our own website and sign up. Uh, and that website is uh, www.audaciousideas.org. So I hope you'll do both of those things uh, and join us for Big Change and for some of our other events. And now uh, for our speaker and presenter, I'd love to introduce and give you a little bit of information about Shakti Butler. As many of you know, she is a filmmaker and the founder and president of the World Trust. Uh, and she's a dynamic educator in the field of diversity and racial equity. Uh, Dr. Butler engages, um, as we're going to experience tonight, she engages audiences with participatory keynotes and workshops, and she often uses clips of her films. She's known as a catalyst for change, and she's been hired by many organizations who are themselves seeking to support their own diversity and inclusion goals. Shakti Butler is a multiracial African-American woman with a background of Africa, Arawak Indian, and Russian Jewish um, family. Uh, her work is creative and visionary, and she has served as a bridge builder and has really challenged uh, many people through the last uh, two decades. She's the producer and director of some groundbreaking documentaries, uh, including The Way Home, Mirrors of Privilege, Making Whiteness Visible, and Light into Shadows. Her latest film, uh, Cracking the Codes, The System of Racial Inequity, uses story and theater and music to illuminate the larger frame of structural and systemic um, racial inequity. So again, welcome, and we're very pleased to have you with us tonight. So thank you very much. I appreciate being invited to be here. How are you all doing? Are you hungry? Yeah. You are? <laughs> I can't do much about that. I'm going to try to feed you in a different way. Are you tired? 
Have you had a busy day? Okay, so the first thing I want to do is to invite you to, uh, I should tell you this first. I found a report card recently from when I was in the first grade and my teacher said she's really bossy. <laughs> so bear with me with my bossy self. I'm going to ask you to, if you can, take everything off your laps and to uncross your legs and put both feet on the floor <clears throat> and to put your, your, um, your butt against the back of your chair so that your spine is straight. And without doing anything else at all, I'd like you to just keep your eyes open, but turn your attention inward. You are breathing. That's a good thing. Notice your breath. When you breathe in, where does your breath go? Does it go to the top of your chest? Lower? Notice your breath. It has a rhythm. You breathe in and you breathe out. So we're going to take some deep breaths together, okay? The best way I know to take a deep breath is to exhale first. So we're going to exhale, breathe in deep, hold it for a moment and then just let go of the day. Just let go. Let go of everything. Everything. So you ready? Three deep breaths. Exhale first. So if you haven't closed your eyes already, please do so, if you're willing. And to ask yourself a question, what is a gift that I bring to the world? What is something that I offer that supports others? Some quality, maybe it's your ability to love, maybe it's your ability to have courage. What is it about you that is great? Just one thing, there are many. And remember, if you can, just pull up a very simple memory of a time when you were being that gift. A time when you were being loving or being courageous or whatever it is that came up for you. Just a small example. And just take a moment to thank yourself for your own greatness, for your own generosity, whatever that is. And when you're ready, just take another couple of breaths and open your eyes. So why do I ask you to do this? We're all so busy, aren't we? We have so much to do. And yet we rarely take a time to just be with ourselves and to appreciate what it is that we offer. So I'm going to ask whoever feels like it, just shout out one word, something that's your gift, a quality that you have that makes you great. So you have to say it loud so I can hear you. Flexibility. Flexibility. What else is here? Curiosity. Curiosity. Uplifting. You uplift others. Listener. You're a good listener. 
A sense of humor. I heard two things at once. Empathy. Empathy. Yes. And caring. Art. Art. Understanding. Friendship. Strength. Connection. Diversity. Is that what she said? Diversity. Two more. Vision and good hugs. So, thank you for that sense of humor. If everybody here has something, and the reason that I invite us to do this is because I always begin whatever I do by building community, conocimiento. Conocimiento comes from the Latino movement. It's about building connection and understanding the strengths that we have because when we're going to tackle something that's challenging, we need our strength. We need the best of who we are to be the best that we can be. Does that make sense? Sure it does. And so conocimiento is something, we, we have so much to do that often we want to get to the answer. But we have to, I have to know you. I want to know who has my back. I want you to know that I have yours. And that's the way that I always start. So thank you very much for indulging me. We're going to be watching a film called Cracking the Codes, The System of Racial Inequity. And this film provides a frame to support you in being a person who can advocate on behalf of what it means to build a world that's more just. Social justice is what I do. That's the work that I'm engaged in. And so this frame allows us to see the complexity, the complex issues that have the system consistently churn out inequities. So when you think about your human system, what is the job of your system? What is the job of your system? I don't ask trick questions so anybody can answer that. Cleansing. What else? When you get hurt, what does your body do? It heals it. It fixes it. The job of the system is to keep your body going. Yes? So that when something happens, it moves to do whatever it needs to do to create wholeness. Balance. Right? So that's a system. So the system of racial inequity has the same job. Its job is to churn out inequity. That's what it does. And how does it do it? So that's what this film is about. Um, there are three sections to the film. I'm going to kind of condense them down a little bit. So you're going to watch section one and section two. And I want to ask you to watch the film in a certain kind of way. Most of us, when we go to the movies, we go to be what? So this is not entertainment. I'll fix that in a second. Um, what this is, is I want you to watch it, and you have paper, and you got to hand that when you came in. If you don't have paper, you can write on the back of that. I want you to notice what stands out for you, because that's what you're going to be talking to somebody else about. So the room is so full, I don't think there's anybody here sitting by themselves except for maybe you, but you should join together so you have someone else to talk to. So you're going to watch the film, you're going to watch what stands out for you, you're going to be talking to somebody who's sitting next to you about why, what stands out for you, why it does that. What is the meaning of it for you? And um, you'll also hear chimes in the film. When you hear the chime, it means you're just taking a moment of silence to take it in. And then when the flag comes up, that's when we're going to have conversations, except for I'm going to combine section one and two, so we're going to ignore the first flag. Okay, so you ready? Yeah.
Are the lights going to stay the same? Are we dimming the lights at all? It doesn't have to be completely dark, but I'm going to go ahead and start. The system of inequity is embedded in history, culture, and identity. It has internal components and external components. These components are moved or influenced by power and economics. The internal components consist of bias, privilege, and internalized racism. The external components play out in relationships which are interpersonal, institutional, and structural. All of these layers are happening simultaneously, and they are churning out inequities.
my mother explaining slavery to me. And I remember I was really, you know, like in elementary school, and she described slavery, that people, human beings, were slaves. And I didn't understand what she meant, so I asked her to explain that. What, what do you mean? They had to do a lot of chores, because she had us doing a lot of chores at home. But I knew that wasn't what she meant, but I wanted to, what do I compare this to? She said, oh, no sugar, uh-uh. They couldn't be married, they couldn't keep their children, they didn't have their own souls. Everything was taken from them, and you know, your grandfather, she met her father. His father was a slave. I said, no way. I said, well, why did the people let themselves be slaves? And she said, oh, Eric, it wasn't like that. The whole government supported it. the history of 
U.S. bomb testing on Marshall Island. But the bomb was 1,000 times the energy of the bomb that captured Hiroshima, exceeding the power of that bomb as vastly as it exceeded the greatest high explosive giants of World War II. There's a one long skinny island where the U.S. military base is, and then there's this other island called Abai, where all the folks of color live, and they come over during the day and work in a lot of the service sector jobs, and then go back at the end of the day, and also have radiation from all of the bomb testing that happened, um, you know, in the mid-20th century. That was something I had no idea about. How many of our stories are left untold? Buried under piles of dust waiting to be forgotten. Can we truly forget them? Or did they just get told another way?
remember, I'll never forget this, I saw an Indian person on TV, which back then was like unheard of. And I'd be like, oh my god, there's an Indian person on TV. And, they, and, and they'd be like, well, why is that such a big deal to you? And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm Indian. I remember um, when I didn't know I was black. My mother is black and white. My grandmother is an Irish woman born on a farm. My mother had very, very, very light white skin, freckles, and brown hair, all straight. So here she is, a black girl growing up um, with, without a, the absolute black exterior and a black experience and a black family. Um, where she's too light and, and white to be cool with black children and um, too like black folks to be cool with white children. My father is black from Tennessee. And my mother, I think because though she was black, didn't have, you know, my sisters are brown skinned, happy headed girls, you know. She could she couldn't fully understand what that meant for us. My mother would tell us things like, um, you know, and you're, you're, you're black and, 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 and you're white, but more than anything, you're, um, you're, you're a good person. You're, um, we have several, um, several different cultures in us and in our background. And I don't think she was deliberately dodging the issue of race, but I think she, she couldn't fully understand the impact of, you know, no, no police officer that would pull me over and consider my racial mixture. When I was a couple of days old, I was adopted. My birth parents are black Colombians, and my adopted family was Caucasian. In my parents' mind, I'm their child, and they're white. And what does that make me? And my adopted father has talked about what it was like for him to have my birth father, a black man, come to stay with them in their house and come to church with us and for my adoptive dad to stand up and introduce who my birth father was and he said really it was in that space when he really realized that everyone else in the church was looking at my birth dad and now suddenly at me as a black person and that was never something he had to confront before and suddenly he realized that that was something that I, as an adult, was connected to as well. For me as a Latino, I can choose to be one of multiple identities. So if I moved to Michigan without talking, I could pass for Arab. If I moved to California, I could pass for Mexican. If I moved to Florida, I could be Cuban and Puerto Rican. If I'm in New York, I could be Dominican, Puerto Rican, or anything as long as I'm not downtown. That's where all the white folk come out. Who was raised in a black family on the south side of Chicago, and she was the only mixed race person in her family. She ended up living in France for six years with her sister, who ended up settling in France. And over there, she people there thought she was Moroccan because there's a large Moroccan and Algerian population. And so therefore, in that environment, she was treated the way North African women in France are treated. And she began to really identify with those relationships, and her primary uh, source of support and relationship ended up being Moroccan and Algerian women. She started to really identify with that. And when she came back to the United States, she had this experience where 
she, you know, black folks didn't totally accept her. They, they did, but they didn't really understand the whole thing in France that she had experienced. And then white folks treated her like she was black. And so she was moving between different racial dynamics in different social contexts. And somehow, I was able to relate to her. And what it's helped me realize is that identity is complex, how we navigate and negotiate it is complex, and therefore, I think we have to come up with solutions to how we navigate the complexity of our identities that are more flexible than the rigidness of, of racism and race. So I was going to um, fly by this part and go into the next part, but I can't stand it. So I want to, <laughs> you're going to only have just a few minutes to, um, you, can, you can talk to each other in one of two ways. You can either talk about one thing that stood out for you in the section that you just saw and why that stood out for you, or you could talk about who are you. This idea of who we are and what we are is complex, as Amir just said in the end. So who are you? And this is just a time for you to kind of connect with your neighbor. If you don't know who you're sitting next to, please uh, share your names first. But literally, you have a little bit less than 10 minutes to have this conversation. What stood out for you and why? Or who are you? Or both, if you choose, if you can get it in there. So go ahead.
If you can hear my voice, clap once. If you can hear my voice, it's not, not a very loud mic, huh? It's really loud. Okay, guys. I think we're going to resume. So if you can give your attention to Shakti again. Thank you. Okay, we're going to try this again. If you hear my voice, clap once, clap twice, clap three times. I think we need to be a team. She got it started, but then I could jump in here afterwards. So, um, first of all, notice that everybody's talking, pretty much. And the idea of this film uh, is to engage in conversation. Um, I think most of us know that the way the brain functions is we, we like to fill in the blanks between what we think we know and what we might know if we did a little bit of investigation. And so I want to share with you one short thing before we move on to the next section. For those of you who have paper and pen, I would invite you to look up the Strategic Questioning Manual by Fran Peavy, P-E-A-V-E-Y. The Strategic Questioning Manual by Fran Peavy. If I, could, if I could actually instill that into every organizational, educational place, and I know I would do so, because it really talks about the value of asking questions. This film is designed to support people who want to engage other people in the conversation. Oftentimes when we do talk about anything, we tend to talk to people who think like who? Like us. We, we organize our lives in a way that the people who we associate with most are people who are like us. But there comes a time when we understand that what's at stake here is not just that we be nice to each other. As a matter of fact, everybody in here could be the nicest person they could possibly be and it won't do a darn thing about structural racism. We'll not interrupt it at all. And so we have to engage others in conversation and we have to find ways to do that. And we have to do it in such a way that people can think out loud. Um, is this the time, Maggie? Okay, so Maggie's my friend, she's sitting in the back, and um, I, I had to call her and tell her that when I got picked up from the airport last night, <laughs> and my taxi driver took me to the hotel, that he, we got into a conversation, mostly he got into a conversation, where he proceeded to tell me why he didn't like black people. So... And everything that's wrong with black people. So after he went on for a, a minute or two, and, and where I really thought that my hand was going to shoot right through the thing and, you know, get him, I said to him, I'm African-American. <laughs> it's one of the things about being a light-skinned African-American woman is <laughs> you hear a lot of really interesting things. And um, I, I tend to use that because my daddy taught me that it was my job to hold the door open for people who couldn't get through. Because I have a privilege. I have light skin privilege. And I use it. And so when I said to him, I'm African American, he kind of stuttered a little bit. But then he went on to justify why he said what he said. 
And I didn't have the time or the energy to try to engage him at that moment. But I thought, this is a perfect example of the both and of the internal aspects of racialization, which is a noun, and the external components of racialization. We have to work on the inside part and we have to work on the outside part because they're in relationship to each other. Does that make sense? We have to expand our capacity to hold paradox, that is to know that people are made of the highest, but they have to be held accountable for their behavior, period. And he needed to be held accountable for his behavior. And the only way that I could do it was to tell him who he was talking to. But we need more tools to be able to ask good questions so that when we listen and we start really analyzing where people are coming from, because all of these things in the system are happening at one time, and I'll tell you what I mean by this when we get through the next section, but we have to be able to know what kinds of questions to ask when. So when you listen to what someone is saying to you, like my conversation with him would have been about history because he doesn't know history. That's where I would have gone with him because I was quickly going, you know, history, culture, identity, power, economics, it's every, you know, all of those things are going on, but what kinds of questions do I want to ask? Why? Not to alienate someone, but to consider them, have them consider something new, something that they don't know. That's my job. That's our job. If we want to create a, an equitable world. So... Are you ready for the next section? Okay, so we're looking at the internal components. Um, just a couple of things. One is, nowhere in the film are we talking specifically about power and economics, but it's all over the place. I couldn't fit that into the film, but it's a thing to be holding, it's a topic to be holding in the background. How is power and economics driving this uh, situation? The other thing is I want to say is that in the world of polarization, you have black and you have white, and people of color, other people of color, are scooped up in the middle. What does that mean? And to really understand how the system keeps us very much polarized and becomes very confused when we start talking about the exceptions, whatever those might be. But the polarization sets the standard, who belongs and who doesn't who is civilized and who is not, who is supposed to gain advantage and who isn't. That's the conversation I was having with that, well, the, that the taxi cab driver was having with me last night. So, next section, here we go.
then I met another woman, okay, when she was a girl, so we're 11 years old, and I meet another person who did become my best friend. She still is my best friend. And her name was Serena Maria Cruz, right? So Serena, for me, wasn't of color. She was white. So we're graduating, we're, we're, we're setting up the PSAT to take the test, and uh, this is where we've gone to school together for five or six years. And we've been to each other's houses, we've had birthday parties, we're all involved in the same gifted program activities, and, and um, she's filling out her, her form and filling out her race. And, and I'm filling out my form, and I look over at Serena, and I see her filling out the bubble for his stag. And so I have to reach out and I grab her hand and I pull it up and I tell her, Serena, you're supposed to fill out the white bubble. And she looks at me and she says, she says, she says, look at me, Susie. She says, look at me, like this. And I looked at her and I didn't have any clue what she was talking about. I didn't know what she was talking about. I think unconscious bias is really heavily implicated in white America's racial attitudes in this age of Obama, so to speak. Um, on the one hand, I think a lot of white folks who actually admire President Obama a lot, who voted for him, uh, who find him to be an extremely erudite, intelligent, capable leader. Nonetheless, I mean, notice from the studies, many of those folks will indeed have implicit associations between black folks and negativity, uh, different stereotypes, different views, and they've taken many of them the implicit association tests that have been run by Harvard and Princeton and others uh, that can test for these sort of subconscious biases. And what those studies have found is 75% of white Americans have overtly pro-white, anti-black bias. Well, by definition, some of those folks voted for Barack Obama because he got about like, 44% of the white vote, 45%. Um, so by definition, a large number of white folks who carry around this sort of baggage of bias and, and prejudice toward, let's say, the black community are willing to carve out these exceptions for those who make us comfortable, who seem different from the norm. My ex-husband is, is a white man, and he adores and always has adored his son. There were things that happened to my son in the community that he lived in because he was mixed race that forced him to learn to use both intellect and humor. However, I became aware that as Noah grew older and would defend himself, his father would try to get him to defend himself with anything but his fists, even when he was under attack. And his dad was like, oh, no, 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 we don't want him to be a bully. We don't, we don't want him to stoop to their level. I'm going to go and talk to the parents. Well, later we sat down, he and I had a conversation. It's like, well, Noah's being hit. Why shouldn't he defend himself? He's tried every other methodology that we could think of, and it hasn't worked. And so I think he has a right to defend himself. What came out of that conversation was outside of my husband's awareness, because he loves me and he loves his son, he had a fear of angry black men. He didn't want his son to be one of those angry black men. And he was doing everything that he could to keep that from happening, even though it meant that Noah was actually being oppressed and abused and stigmatized at school. We finally got to some of those early messages about black boys through our educational systems, but it had also impacted my 
and part of those messages are, I have advice, right? I have knowledge that that is good knowledge that everybody deserves to have in order to become like me. So I I can give advice, and people will value my advice. And in particular, I can give advice to people of color. Recently, I was in a meeting with a, a white woman and an African American woman, where the African American woman was trying to explain to the white woman, with me as a witness, that what the white woman was doing was very oppressive to her. The African American woman took great pains to be respectful, to be um, as articulate as she could while being kind at the same time, and really told a lot of stories in the hope that this white woman would understand in what way she was oppressing her. And each time that the African-American woman would tell her story, the white woman would say, no, you were wrong. No, you must not understand what I was telling you. You obviously don't know me very well. I would never do that. I call this behavior of always being right, always thinking that you know better than a person of color, always trying to make sure that things work for you as internalized white superiority. I rarely really understand when I'm exhibiting behavior that is um, racist and internalized white superior in its nature. From well-meaning white people who've never thought about privilege systems or whiteness or race, start up. It's not the, the teaching is very necessary to get them past blame, shame, and guilt. They were born into circumstances they didn't invent. They were born into history they didn't invent. Rather than have them do the solipsistic thing of getting all self-involved in this, it's, it's just very important to hold them while they get into a rational frame of mind that their big systems existed they didn't know about. They were born into them. The American myth of meritocracy doesn't apply. Um, we were not taught history, but this is history they're learning. And the, the American myth of meritocracy is the unit of society is the individual. And whatever you end up with must be what you wanted and worked for and earned and deserved individually. They've been taught that. It's not true. It's, a, it's partly true. Your individual effort from your own sacred center does matter. But it's untrue. Also, huge systems that one's born into will bear on what one can do with one's life and how one will say. And that's the part that has been missing from that education. So these white women breaking up over their first experience of hearing about racism, they are basket cases, partly because of their bad, bad education, their inability to see systemically. And it's not their fault. But they need to be hustled past it as quickly as possible with some intermediate words which I think I've just spoken here. 
You did not invent those systems you were born into. They are there, and you were taught not to see them, and you were a very good student of what you've been taught. In a way, my entire career I owe to white privilege, and I tell that story not sort of as a matter of self-flagellation or out of guilt. I tell it because I want people to understand that there can be two things that are true at once. On the one hand, we can work really hard, but on the other hand, our hard work can be met by access to an opportunity structure. So it's not that I didn't work hard. It's not that my great-grandfather, who came here from Russia in you know, the early part of the 1900s, a Jewish immigrant who didn't speak English, he worked 18 hours a day. It's not that he didn't work hard, but he also had access to jobs that were off limits to people of color the day he got off the boat. It's a lot easier to recognize how you're different and the doors that close in your face than it is to recognize how you're normal. And doors are open for you so that you can step through them. This is not a reality that is only held by white people. In those areas where I am dominant, I just assume that the doors that are held open for me are held open for me because I'm such a fabulous human being. It doesn't dawn on me that I can have a conversation about my dark complexion, and I can have a conversation about being black, and I can have a conversation about being a woman. So I don't have to deal with the fact that because I'm educated and I speak standard English and I live a middle-class existence, there are entitlements that I have that other people don't. There are entitlements that I have because I'm heterosexual that some people don't. There are entitlements that I have because I'm U.S. born that some people don't. And I don't have to think about them. And unless I take the blinders off and start looking at the interconnected nature of power and abuse of power in particular, I can't have this conversation. And so in the context of race, it shouldn't surprise us that white people have a very difficult time having this conversation because they are not aware of the ways in which they've been socialized and acculturated to take their dominance for granted. Even when they're being, they think, politically aware, politically astute, and moving a social justice agenda, there's a way in which whiteness and the normalcy of that whiteness and the superiority of that whiteness shows up that people are completely unaware of. My sister-in-law, uh, who's half black, half white, but looks white, blue eyes, whiter than most white children together, uh, so they're first cousins, and we, you know, it's a wonderful, very, very multicultural family. So we're going in the same way, anyway. And uh, Kathleen, my, my sister-in-law, is a friend of mine, and she's, uh, you know, writing a check for a grocery. Now, my daughter, who at the time was 10 years old, was standing with me, and I was directly behind her, you know, getting ready to get my grocery. So Kathleen comes up, and the checker, who's a strawberry dried, uh, freckled, very delightful, warm, uh, you know, the checker, the woman, is talking to Kathy, hey, how you doing? It's been a nice day today, they're just chatting up, and she says, yeah, so Kathy writes her, her check, and she steps off to the side with a rope, because she's writing for me. Of course, Kathy looks white, right? So I come up, no conversation, she looks up at me, absolutely no, just little chatter, and uh, I write my check, my daughter, however, is 10, notices immediately the difference in how she responds to me. So I write my check, 
And she goes, I'm going to need two pieces of ivy. At which point, my daughter looks at me, and she gets very, very embarrassed, and tears are, are, are kind of coming from her eye, like, Mommy, you're not going to... You're not going to let her do this. Why is she doing this to us, right? So I'm trying to figure out what I should do. Because behind me are two elderly white women. All right, I'm thinking, okay. So then I become the angry black woman. All right. And they're going to be. And I'm just, I'm, I'm just trying to second guess all the drama. So then I, I just give her the two pieces of ID. I say, you know, some things you don't choose your balance, right? And then it gets worse. She pulls out the bad check book. So she starts searching for my license in the bad checks, at which point it's just out of control now. Just as I'm standing there um, trying to decide what to do, and it's really deeply humiliating, and now my, my daughter is full-blown emotionally upset, who's dead, my sister-in-law walks back over. And she steps in and she says, excuse me, why are you doing this? And the checker goes, well, what, what, do you, what do you mean? She goes, why are you taking her through all of these changes? Why are you doing that? She goes, well, um, this is our policy. She goes, no, it's not your policy because you didn't do that with me. Oh, well, I know you. You've been. She goes, no, no, she's been here for years. I've only lived here for three months. <laughs> and so at this point, the two white elderly ladies go, oh, I can't believe what this checker has done with this woman. At this point, the manager walks over. So the manager walks over and says, is there a problem here? And then my sister-in-law again responds, she goes, yes, there is a problem here. Here is what happened. So you see, she used her white privilege. And even though Kathleen is half black and half white, she recognizes what that means. And she made the statement. She pointed out the injustice. And she, as a result of that one act, influenced everyone in that space. But what would have happened? I can't know for certain had the black woman said, this is unfair, why are you doing this to me? What did have had the same impact? But Kathleen knew that she walked through the world differently than I did. And she used her white privilege to educate and make right a situation that was wrong. That's what you can do every single day. Until I actually got to know somebody who was really, really, really like what 
she laid out a reality that just broke my heart. She desperately wanted to be the color that I was. And basically what that taught me in terms of internalized depression and internalized colorism is how carefully we have been trained culturally to be dissatisfied with our reality as people of color, or actually white folk as well, that the dissatisfaction is bred into the culture and it is part of the ways in which we are oppressed and the ways in which we oppress others. I think one of the, the biggest disturbances that I have about my dad in particular has to do with his upset about how dark he is. I remember about 10 years ago, and I'm 54, so this wasn't that long ago. 10 years ago, he was visiting, and he showed me a picture of himself when he was four years old. I had never seen pictures of him when he was young before. He never showed any photos of, of himself to us. And he showed me this picture, and he was four years old. He showed me this picture, and he says, look at this. I look at the picture, and it's this cute, beautiful, four-year-old boy, dark, dark, dark. And then they live in the desert. They're even darker, right? So they lived out there in the desert. Dark picture of this four-year-old, cute four-year-old. And I said, Dad, oh, you're so cute. How come you haven't shown me these pictures before? This is the first time I've seen them. And he said, well, look at it. And I looked at it. He says, I look like a goddamn piece of charcoal. Well, I remember a time when I was six, and I was hanging out at my great-grandmother's home. And uh, she's very white, very Spaniard in her appearance. And I was hanging out with another kid who was my age, a classmate, who was black. Uh, and when we went to the house, I was so eager for him to try the strawberry and chocolate grits. You know, in Spanish it's farina or arena, but in, in English, you know, it's the grits. And I remember my great-grandmother telling me that he couldn't come into the house. But I didn't know why. And I really didn't understand why until later after I became more conscious and reflecting back why it was. And it was very simply because he was black. And she didn't want her house, her floor, her presence tinted by blackness. I'm thinking of myself at age 14, you know, hanging out in the flower shop. There's a white woman and a Latino woman at the counter. The Latino woman was there first. And I choose to talk to the white woman. And then you lose your own humanity, you know, because, you know, what's the humanity in, like, treating someone more poorly than another person? that there was one other African-American boy in the school and in my class. Rosilius was treated just like I was. That is, that um, none of the other boys and girls who were white would have anything to do with him or with me. And so I remember there was one particular day when he was just trying to make friends. I don't really remember what it was, but I think it might have been in the classroom during an art project. And he said, you know, why don't you come on over? Why don't you work on this with me? And I said, no, I'm not going to. No, I'm not going to. And I walked away. He actually followed me um, in the room and started to break out in tears because he knew and I knew what I was doing, but 
deep down inside at that point, I was, it was real clear to me that he was somebody that I needed to avoid. I know that I, I get challenged more in the classroom than my, than my white colleagues. In fact, I actually taught a class with a white colleague. So it was right there. We had the same set of students. We were in the class at the same time. And I saw it day after day that, um, that he would say something and had to give very little explanation that followed. And they would all be fine with it. And before I would you know, say, well, this is your assignment, I have to make sure that I had everything ready for why are you asking us to do this? Being challenged on every level, with grades, with assignments. So from the point of view of internalized racism, I fall into the trap where I'm justifying and I'm bending over backwards and I have to remind myself that I'm here because I have an expertise, I have the experience. That's why I'm the instructor. I have to go there because the automatic reaction is to please, to help them along. That's the internalized racism is, is, is not feeling that I'm, that I'm capable, but I am capable. When we look at American child slavery, which lasted for centuries, we're always told, don't talk about it, shut it down, why it's over with now. And what I understand as a healer, as a clinician, you know, and as an educator, is that it doesn't just go away. So the question becomes, what does it look like now? How did it get passed along? What, what are some of the symptoms of this thing I'm talking about, which I call post-traumatic slave syndrome? But it, it becomes adaptive behavior. Things that lie just beneath the surface. For example, um, I, I, I give this example because it's such a good one. I think people can, can, can kind of grasp it. Uh, there are certain things like sayings and things you grow up with that you just take for granted. Mama said it, or Big Daddy said it, or Pookie, somebody said it. And it's just something you've come to know. I'll give you an example of that. There's, let's say that there are two people, 2010, or in contemporary society, that uh, their mother, two mothers, white mother, black mother, or it can be a white mother, a black father, a white father, it doesn't matter, it's not gender specific. But you have these two individuals, they have children. Say these two mothers have two sons. And they, these two sons play together. They go to school together. They spend it out of each other's house. They're best of friends. And they find themselves, the mothers and the two sons, at a school meeting. The black mother and her son seated next to the white mother and her son. So the black mother leans over and says to the white mother, you know, your son's really doing well. He's really coming along. And she goes, well, thank you. And she begins to say, what did you know? He's in the talent and the gifted. And did you know he won the science fair? And did you know his uncle was an astronaut? Because she's oozing with pride. Wonderful thing. So then the white mother stops for a moment and realizes that the black mother's son is actually excelling her son. So she leans over to the white mother she goes, what are you talking about? My son, not your son's the one that's really coming along. And the black mother's response is, girl, get out of here. You should have seen that boy yesterday. Ooh, wee, he's all that boy today. Ooh, he's a handful. Stop it. <laughs> now, the white mother's response is, wow, they're so negative. No wonder. Why are they so negative? Now, within our cultural adaptation and norm, if you're African American, not even just African, you can be from the Caribbean, black folks know that even though that mother's going, girl, get out of town, he's a mess, she's really proud. Everyone knows that, sort of, except maybe her son. So now let's take a look at this from a different context, because that's not healthy behavior, okay? And whether it's, whether it's cultural or adaptive, doesn't matter. It's not healthy behavior. Why isn't she president? 
Why isn't she oozing like a white mother? Well, let's roll it back a couple centuries. And let's, now you have a black mother that is seated maybe at the table cutting up onions or she's working in a field and she's enslaved and her children are with her. And a white slave owner comes over, could be white woman or white man, and they say to that mother, my, my, now that boy, that boy there, he's sure coming along. What is she going to say? She's going to say, no, sir, no, sir, he's shiftless, he can't work, he's stupid, because I don't want you to sell my boy. If it's my daughter, I don't want you to breed her. So I denigrate them to protect them. That is called appropriate adaptation to living in a hostile environment. We never unlearned it. That's post-traumatic slave syndrome. And while we continue to move on, and we continue to even excel despite it all, there are some broken parts that we need to fix. And we can't fix it if we don't look. Sorry, I don't know how to turn on the lights. I get it. So um, you have an opportunity now to talk to one another again. I would like to suggest that in addition to your registering for yourselves what stories stand out for you and why, which is sort of a continuing question all the way through, is to take the last story that we heard Refer to the handout that you have that gives you the um, infinity loop. It looks like an infinity loop. The system of racial inequity or racialization as I would call it. And to go through the story and analyze the story based upon what you have here. So if you're looking at it, it's, the system itself is embedded in history and culture and identity. So where is the history, the culture, and the identity in the story that you just heard? Where is power and economics a part of the story? That's pretty obvious, right? That we need to have cheap sources of labor in order to make money. And that cheap sources of labor is a part of globalization. We need cheap labor. We have more slavery today than we've had ever we're disconnected from ourselves and we're disconnected from each other and we're disconnected from the earth. Therefore, we can do the things that we do and we're all part of the system. So looking at the story, history, culture and identity, power and economics, then go through the internalized list, the internal things that are happening there that are bias, privilege and internalized racism all cause wounding, all of it. So just do that much and then later on, on your own, or if you have more time and you want to talk to this about somebody else, you can look at the structural components, which are not in the film yet, but if you want to get to those, you can see the interpersonal relationship, the institutional relationships, and the structural relationships. I want to say just one word about structural relationships, because this is a place where often it, it can get a little confusing for people. And if you have to explain it to somebody else. So we're sitting in a room right now, right? And this room, there's a structure that allows us to be here. What is the structure? It's everything from, this was once an idea. This whole building was an idea that somebody or somebody's had at one point in time. 
and there's money and there's chairs and there's foundation and there's electricity and plumbing and technology and all of these things are working together. They are a network of relationships that allow us to be here right now. And the system functions in the same way. Everything, the history, the culture, the identity, the power and economics, the internal components, all of them, and the external components allow the system to perpetuate itself. If we don't understand or we can't help other people understand how the system functions, we cannot address it. Because it remains at the individual, personal level. So then you'll hear people say things like, I'm a good person, or I don't see color, or all of those kinds of things that really don't mean anything. I mean, the person who's saying them is making meaning for themselves, and they've been taught. So just take this last story, talk to the person you're sitting next to. Literally, you have five minutes. I just really want you to run through where's the history, culture, and identity, power and economics, we already named the institution of slavery, and the internal components and the external if you can. Okay, is that clear?
your attention. If you hear my voice, clap once, twice, ten times. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, so it's really interesting because how many times do you hear people say, it's hard to have a conversation about race? No, it's not. <laughs> even, even if you've never had a conversation before, there's an entry point here for everybody. It's so deep, isn't it? It's really, excuse me for chewing on my cough drop. I'm trying not to cough on you instead. So how many of you actually tried to go through the systemic phases? Okay, just a couple of you. No, let me, let me say to you, let me say to you that this is very typical. It's hard to actually tackle it just from an analytical point of view. But it's really not that hard. You just have to look for what shows up in the different categories because it's like peeling back layers of an onion. I would go through it with you now, but I want you to see the rest of the film. I'm willing to stay a little bit after for people who have questions, but I, I would like to be able to show you the rest. But practicing seeing the different elements within a single story is really an important, important thing for us to do because if you go and look up the strategic questioning manual, it will help you identify what kinds of questions you want to ask when. Um, I was thinking of something, somebody said something to me recently. But you know, for example, if somebody says something kind of off the wall, it's, it, and you understand dynamically how the systemic element is actually working and when you ask them the first question which is a simple question like what makes you think that's true? You have a question for me? I don't know that I have an answer but did I kick the tab driver? Of course not. Are you kidding? No. I didn't tip the cab driver. I held my tongue though pretty good. Alright, so you ready for the last section? These are all the external components. So there's this relationship between the internal and the external that we have to understand. Here we go. Can you point to in your own mind some of the ways that you are oppressed and depressing? Um, I remember when I really was on this, making this journey and really making a commitment that I'm going to heal from the disease I had termed racism. Uh, when you make a commitment like that, nature has a way of providing you with all kinds of opportunities to really show that you really are doing the work. So one day after work, I picked up my daughter, and we were on our way home. She said, let's go have Chinese food. So it was a Chinese restaurant right up the street from where we lived. So she and I went into the restaurant. Rachel Simpson was passing by us. Nobody was really stopping. And then I called one of them. I said, I'd like to get an order to go. And she said, one moment. So she left, and she never came back. So I was sitting there, and she really sat past. And I said, wait a minute. So finally, an elderly woman uh, 
was at the counter, so I said, let me go up and talk to her. So I walked up to her, and I was just reading some stuff off, and she wasn't writing anything down. And so I finished my order, and, and then she looked at me, and she said, we don't serve you people. What? And I looked at this woman. I said, well, look, you know, it's okay. You don't have to serve me. I said, but I really want you to think about what you're doing. I said, there are all kinds of people in the world. I said, there are good black people and bad black people, good Chinese people and bad Chinese people, good white people and bad. And I, it was like I was having an out-of-body experience. I was looking deep into her eyes and she was, it was like I had captured her and she was listening and I was sharing with her. I said, but I just want you to think about the message that you're sending the young people by saying, you don't serve your people. Who are you people? When 9-11 happened, I had a lot of context about the history of racism in our country. And immediately, I recognized there was going to be a shift in our society, and there was going to be a focus on our community, the Muslim community in the United States, and there was going to be an enormous amount of backlash. All of a sudden, it became, we are the enemy. What I saw with a lot of white folks was Muslim people in this society went from being completely unknown to I have a very specific idea about who you are. Muslim people are overwhelmingly viewed to be people of color. And, and so as a result, there's a racial dynamic there. And also I think it's been interesting because I think that there's a concerted effort to make us foreign and the other. <laughs> who, again, is a fairly liberal columnist and wrote a piece, I think it was in the New York Times, right after or right before the election, where he said that, you know, basically racism is not a problem anymore because when white folks get to know black folks well, their biases and their fears subside. Now, number one, I'm not sure that's true, but secondly, even if it were true, the truth is, given the history of racism, spatial segregation, residential isolation, the fact that 85% of white folks live in communities with virtually no people of color around, even if he were right, it wouldn't matter because most white folks won't get that opportunity to actually form close, intimate friendships or connections with people of color. And unfortunately, if uh, it isn't happening, the only way we get to know folks of color is via media. So maybe we see Barack Obama on television coming into our living rooms every night. And over an 18-month to two-year period, we're able to say, yeah, you know, I sort of like that guy. He seems, seems really capable and really bright. Maybe I wasn't sure at first, but given two years, he was able to overcome, you know, maybe my first impression. But the only other folks we're seeing in the media are either folks who are sort of superstars on the one hand, or criminals, on the other hand. Those are the black folks we typically see on TV. They're either like mega-millionaire athletes or entertainers, or they're the folks doing the perp walk on the 6 o'clock news that the cops have just gone arrested and haven't even let them put a shirt on before cuffing them and bringing them out in front of the cameras. If the only people you see regularly are superstar millionaires and thugs, for the average person, they can't relate to either of those, right? The average person of color can't, and the average white person can't either. The, the superstar, you're likely to envy their position, and the thug, you're afraid of. And envy and fear are not particularly good human emotions upon which to base some personal connections or intimate relationships. So I think that's what we're dealing with. You know, Barack Obama, or Bill Cosby, or Oprah Winfrey, or a handful of people of color, we're able to get to know them, or at least we think we know them, via media. But for average everyday white folks and for 
overcome those implicit biases is a lot more rare. My very first class at the university was this um, sociology, and somehow I ended up in this sociology class where there were, a, it was a small class. It was about maybe 150 students, and most classes were these four or five hundred students. And the professor was a wasp, and really grew up in the summer. I really didn't know what a wasp was, you know? And, and so uh, the professor, the first day of class, he said, how many wasps are in the classroom? And so I was looking around, because I was looking for this, like, wasp. <laughs> So when you're used to 
crack vials on your walkway and everything you own is a step past shitty, you really ain't trying to see nothing pretty. White boy who walks in the room and is animated and moving around and maybe even a little cheeky is smart. And isn't, isn't he smart? Isn't he cheeky? He's almost looked at as, well, boys will be boys. A child of a boy of color, especially an African-American boy who walks in the room exhibiting the same behavior, walks in as, hmm, I might need to keep an eye on him. We are afraid of these young boys. And I'm talking young boys, four years old and above. And that instead of the teacher looking at him or herself and saying, what is going on with me, that this same behavior uh, creates fear in me instead of admiration, we pathologize the boy of color. Jump shot. No, I, I just, I want to get over there. Dance. No, listen, I, I, I just, I need to get over there. No, I'm sorry, but I, I, I just want to get over there. Right. No, I need to get over there. There was no place for us in school. I, I would argue that the greatest waste of time in my life was the four years I spent in high school. And this is coming from an educator. That there was, from the food we were fed, to the only way we were really accepted in school, you know, the um, black boys are the mascots of any high school that they're in where I grew up. I don't know about other places. I've seen it in other places, though. I see it now at, at, at universities. Well, like the black, black dudes are, you know, they're, they're the provocative part of your experience in high school or college or in the workplace, you know. And for me, it just, it didn't speak to me. Race always deals with boxes, right? And I, I think when we are, so let's say you grow up in a suburb, you know, or you grow up in an affluent area in a city that has an affluent area and a ghetto, but you're black, a black boy. And you, so you get to school, and there's a box for you. And that box says, you rap, you're an athlete, you're slightly to highly misbehaved, you're not involved or into your education that much, you sell and or use drugs. That's the box that you're accepted in. And in order to play ball, no pun intended, that's how you interact with yourself, your own identity, and this is how you're cool. But you feel like the box that attracts you in is you feel like to be healthier, to be in a more sound mind state, to, to think and know and come from a place of foundation in your life is something that you have to be ashamed of and you have to denounce. It can drive you crazy. Boy is born. He's beautiful, as everyone is. He's brown, like his parents. He is loved. He grows. One day coming from school, 
something I love for Cowboy song. Call him stupid. Bad, stupid, ugly, brown, black, black, brown, ugly. Call him stupid. Bad. Ugly. TV tells boy what cops say. True. Teachers show boy they believe what cops say. True. News say, tubes say, people say, seem like even steeples say, what cops say. True. Boy blue. You know, when I, when I get the occasion, and I don't get it very often, to sit down and do trainings or workshops with law enforcement officers, uh, one of the things that I do usually in the first five minutes is to ask them, um, you know, what's the very first thing you think when you see a young black or Latino male driving a nice car in your community? And almost invariably, and with very few exceptions, including among the officers of color, they will respond probably appropriately. Uh, I will then ask them, next question, uh, when you see a young white male, same age, driving the same kind of car in your community, what is the first thing you think? And almost every time, without exception, including among the officers of color, uh, they will say, spoiled little rich kid, daddy probably bought him a car. Now, on the one level, you know, we've been together for five minutes, me and these cops. We've got a two-hour workshop, three-hour workshop coming. And they've already added themselves fundamentally as racist in the sense that they acknowledge their perception, which is solely based on skin color, is one that is negative toward, in this case, black or brown kids. Um, how is that going to manifest? Well, logic tells you that if you're a police officer who has that reaction, you may not like the spoiled little rich kid either. In fact, you probably don't. But you're not going to hassle him because you're afraid his daddy might have some power on the other hand. If you think the black or brown kid is a dealer, you're going to stop him. You're going to search him. You're probably not going to find anything according to the data, but now you're going to have his name in the system. You're going to be on the lookout for his car. You're able to, in effect, tag him as a possible wrongdoer. And then that's how these folks get caught up, young black and brown men in particular, in the system being harassed over and over and over again, while the white folks, according to the data, are the ones more likely to have drugs in their car. Uh, more likely to uh, to bring drugs to the airports, the ones who are the least suspected are the ones who are actually most likely to be guilty. So you have the combination of personal bias uh, and the reality then of systemic mistreatment. And then the irony of it all is it actually leads you astray and doesn't allow you to do your job effectively. If you're a cop, thinks the black or brown kid's got drugs and the white kid has drugs, you're not even doing your job well. So at some level, you know, these, these personal biases not only affect systemic behavior, but they actually have profound larger social consequences in that our criminal justice resources are really deployed in the completely wrong areas. So a good example is our current foreclosure crisis and the housing crisis. Uh, what happened there is that 30, 40 years ago, you had banks making very explicit racial decisions not to loan to people of color, and particularly not to loan to people who are trying to integrate neighborhoods. That kind of explicit racism was outlawed by the Community Reinvestment Act and by some other civil rights laws, but what came up in their place is a whole range of new financial institutions. And those folks began to make what are now known as subprime loans. And they went 
to the communities that had very little access to traditional mortgages. Their behavior, their lending practices, uh, created a racist impact. It created a tremendous loss of wealth and a huge foreclosure crisis in communities of color. But we couldn't address it because they weren't saying explicitly we're targeting these people because of their race. So we need to have a sense of racism as it works through our rules and regulations or our lack of rules and regulations, uh, even if no one is intentionally uh, trying to be racist. So then say I make the decision to buy a house in a good neighborhood so my child has 
a good education, chances are that neighborhood is less racially diverse. Then that means my child will not have the same kind of interracial experiences growing up that I had living in a, in a city where my, when my parents had fewer choices that were related to my father's immigration status, or not status, but the fact that he was an immigrant, um, and that he, it was harder for him to find good work, which limited where we could live. I may value racial diversity, but given that wealth and access to schooling is so closely linked to home ownership in this society, I don't have to be racist in the traditional sense of the word of not liking somebody who's not like myself to actually be carrying on that tradition. Structural racism, you know, the first part of it is that you're looking at multiple institutions and you're looking at the culture, the morals, the aspirations, the ideas, the language, the images, uh, all of those things that comprise a culture. But the other parts are that you're paying very serious attention to history because that's the way structural racism works, that history matters. So I'm 21, right? And um, I find out that there's this distant relative of mine who once upon a time was the governor of Mississippi, J.P. Coleman. He's the governor between 1956 and 1960. Mind you, he was elected into office um, four months after Brown II. And um, one of the first things he did was set up a state sovereignty commission and sort of be in cahoots with the Citizens Council um, and try to use the law to um, preserve Mississippi's way of life, to subvert Brown through aracial legalistic means. In the archives, I was reading this letter that to me, echoed of a sort of Ward Connerly colorblind um, approach to the law um, as a way to um, ensure that, that racialized hierarchies of power uh, continue and are upheld. And the letter was, was basically one of, you know, in, in 1956, Mississippi, um, looking to remove the language of race from the law. Uh, so as to maintain segregated schools. In my opinion, it was you know, incredibly insidious, but also what made it so that by the end of this term, um, there were still separate schools. The reality is if you're not part of the power structure, you're not one of the ones making the decision, I think you're hyper aware of what's happening. You're hyper aware of the decisions that are being made and how they impact you. And for the folks who are in positions of power, they're not, they don't need to think about it. They don't need to critique it. It's, it works for them. As long as we are being taught that where you end up is about your effort, then the fact that inequality between groups of people is going to come to be seen as natural evidence of some people's superiority and other people's inferiority. Because if you don't educate folks, because you figure it's just wasting money, if you don't provide people job opportunity or equal housing opportunity, and you don't really care if there's disproportionate incarceration because you think, quote unquote, those folks are all bad anyway, then you create this sort of snowball effect where the uneducated and those who can't find housing and those who can't find jobs will almost in 
invariably have to find some way to survive, and that will involve, in some cases, criminal activity, which then will land them in jail. When they get out of jail, 60% of employers say they won't hire anyone who they know to be an ex-con, right? So ultimately, we sort of keep this system in place by a combination of, of, of actual practices in the job market, the school system, et cetera, but also the underlying ideological glue of the society. The system of inequity is embedded in history, culture, and identity. It has internal components and external components. These components are moved or influenced by power and economics. The internal components consist of bias, privilege, and internalized racism. The external components play out in relationships which are interpersonal, institutional, and structural. All of these layers are happening simultaneously, and they are churning out inequities. At the level of structures and institutions, we don't talk about division of resources. We don't talk about larger structures of schooling and workforce. We don't talk about the whole system of racism, and that's the problem. What we owe to ourselves and each other is to have authentic, clear conversation. We could actually get to somewhere so fundamental that the needs of human beings are more important than the desire for profit, or that our individual good is not above the common good, that we actually work together. What a bold and exciting way to organize your society. Different ethnicities. You know, they couldn't have all black people, and they're not, you know, this age. 
sold a movie over We Walk Out, and there are droves of people coming. And who do you think is standing there leaning on the rail with this man and his son? And I say, Dennis, this is a He goes, no way. I said, yes, way back him. So I walk over to the man and I said, do you remember me? He says, yeah, you ran out during the bus scene. Well, they were waiting for the daughter to come out of the bathroom. That's why we were leaning and waiting at the front. I said, can I ask your son something? He said, certainly. So I said to the little boy, I said, you know, now that you've seen the home, You know, I'm sure. Well, because it's nine o'clock and I'll spare you the credits. Um, <clears throat> I just want to um, thank you so much because I realize everybody here has probably put in a full day and you're really tired and yet you're here. And that's amazing and wonderful. And I'm, it makes me personally happy, but it should make you happy too. Because our job collectively is to talk to people and to educate ourselves and others and challenge the status quo wherever you are. So if you're a teacher, you need to be looking at the institution of education. If you're in the in, into politics, then you have to be working to push against the edges that need to be changed in terms of policy. If you're a person who does whatever you do, it's our responsibility to create a bold idea about what a beautiful world can look like. And so there are just two things that I want to tell you really, really fast. One is I want to invite you to go onto our webpage, which is world-trust.org. World-trust.org. We have lots of materials that can support you in helping have this conversation from um, a deep um, analytical perspective. And I think that we also have something called racial equity learning modules, which you can use, anybody can use them to have these conversations in whatever setting you find yourself in. 
And I, I know that there are lots of resources here. I know that the Y um, helped support this event. And I know that the Y does lots of things around looking at issues of race. And the Baltimore Racial Justice Action Group also offers classes and so on and so forth. And Maggie, can you give us that web page just really quick? Sure. So we, there are lots of materials out here and lots of ways that we can move forward. I want to thank very much um, OSI, the Open Society Institute, and I want to thank the Casey Foundation for helping bringing me here. And I mostly want to thank you for being here. It's, it's an honor to be able to uh, share this information with you, and may we go out and make the world the kind of place where we want our grandchildren to live. Have a good evening. <laughs>